Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading together over the last few weeks about the life of Peter, uh, which I have suggested all along is, is really a story about what the steadfast love of Jesus does to Peter. It's a story about what the love of Jesus works in him and what it calls him to and what it makes of Peter for the life of the world. And that is a, a hopeful story, too, because seeing Jesus with Peter points to what Jesus' love might make of people like me and you, too. So last week we read about what I suggested might have been uh, the worst day of Peter's life, or the best day, sorry, the best day of Peter's life. And this morning uh, we're going to look at a day that has to be in the running for one of the worst days of his life. Um, and the thing is, they, they, they look like they're both uh, happening on the same day. So let me read from Matthew 16 for us. I'll read verses 21 through 28. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed if you'd like. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Good Shepherd, we ask that you uh, would come and tend to us and that you would care for us. We ask um, that you would bind up those who have wounds, who feel broken, that you would call back uh, those who have wandered away, and that you would feed all of us um, from green pastures that you lead us to. We ask this in, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, there was, a, there was a half marathon last Sunday in Chicago. Um, I'm guessing like the uh, Bucktown 5K this morning, which I commend you for getting around the barricades and getting here. Um, it's a tune-up for the uh, marathon next week. So maybe you heard about this half marathon that was run last week. Maybe, uh, maybe a few of you ran it. I had never uh, heard about it before. It's called the Hoka One One Half Marathon. Uh, that is a shoe company, I think. Uh, anyhow, I hadn't heard of it until last week when I read a story in the Trib about it that started like this. Uh, Koa Dow finished a half marathon Sunday along Chicago's lakefront feeling elated. Uh, 
crossing the finish line 15 minutes faster than his previous personal record. He celebrated and took some selfies. I felt like the king of the world, he said. So uh, perhaps this does not need to be said, but I am not a runner. I mean, if a bear was chasing me, I would run. If there was some other similar emergency, I would run. But I do not run like some of you do with watches and determination and goals and things like that. That's not how I run. Uh, But no one needs to be a runner or even know much about that sport to appreciate what an amazing thing that was for this guy. Uh, How great this guy must have felt. 15 minutes off of the best time that you have ever run, that is incredible. Sadly, that elation did not last very long, uh, just until later in the afternoon when the organizers of the Hoka One One admitted that just prior to the start, they had altered the course and shortened it by a half mile and not told any of the runners what they had done. I mean, that uh, poor guy, you know, in an instant, uh, all of these times that people had run that were amazing times, in an instant they were erased. That guy, and no doubt hundreds of others, went from feeling like the king of the world to something much less than that in just a matter of minutes, from incredible to incredibly disappointed. (laughs) And this is, of course, precisely where Simon finds himself in the story that we just read together. We read the first part of it last week. Simon has just told Jesus that he knows who he really is. You are the Messiah, Jesus. You're not just a king. You are the king. You are the long-awaited final son of David whose rule will bring justice and peace to the ends of the earth. Jesus, I know exactly who you are. You don't just preach the good news, Jesus. You are the good news. And Jesus met this confession, which was totally true, totally accurate, by the way, with this profound affirmation of Simon, with this deeply meaningful confession of his own, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, blessed are you. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You're Peter, and on you, on you, the rock, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this fisherman from backwater Galilee is now the rock. It is incredible. But then Jesus starts to talk about suffering and about death. And this church was not something that fit into Simon's newly minted story of the world and his place inside of that story. So he starts to come unglued. And he tries to tell Jesus what's what. And Simon goes from the rock to the Satan in a matter of seconds. At breakneck speed from incredible to incredibly disappointed. (laughs) And what I want us to see, church, is that Jesus' response to Simon is a great, beautiful grace. It is a great grace because instead of affirming Simon's bias, instead of baptizing Simon's messed up version of the good life, he deconstructs both of them. He tears them apart. And in steadfast love, he tells Simon the truth, the truth that happens to be the only hope of the world. And this begins the slow, beautiful process of putting unglued Simon 
back together. Jesus does that. And he has been doing that every day, every hour, every minute for people like us ever since that day, right up until now, in this moment, in this place, on this morning. And I hope that he will do it again for us to whatever extent any of us need it. So Matthew starts the story with the phrase, from that time, I think that that is Matthew's way of drawing a straight line from Simon's confession of Jesus as the Messiah to Jesus' teaching about how he will be the Messiah. It's almost like uh, that Simon's confession becomes the trigger that, that says, that tells Jesus, okay, this is the time to begin to teach them the way that I'm going to be the Messiah. And of course, it is nothing at all like what they expected to hear. I mean, for them, the next logical step in their minds is to sit down and it is to begin planning the Jerusalem overthrow. I mean, that's, that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's what he does. We're going to plan this march to Jerusalem, Jesus, and along the way, we're going to pick up a, a lot of supporters. And when we get to Jerusalem, you're going to help us overthrow the corrupt religious establishment, and we're going to overtake the temple, and we're going to establish proper worship there. And I don't know how you figured this all out yet, Jesus, but somehow you're going to lead us to kick out the Roman occupiers. So let's sit down and let's figure this thing out. Let's get a plan. But instead, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests, from the scribes, that he would be killed. <laughs> and then on the third day, he would rise again, which didn't seem to register with anyone that day. So yeah, there's, there's a trip to Jerusalem, um, but Jesus, you're, you're, <laughs> you're supposed to go to Jerusalem to win, not to lose. You're supposed to get to Jerusalem and put down your enemies, not be put down by them. And it sounds an awful lot, Jesus, like you're saying this is necessary, this has to happen. It's not just a possibility, it's necessary. There is no plan B, this is it. This is your plan for the march to Jerusalem. And Jesus doesn't say right here exactly why this is necessary, but we, of course, know and it is good for us to take a moment and remember this is necessary because of steadfast love. <laughs> it's necessary because of steadfast love. This is what God does. When the ones that he made to be perfectly happy and perfectly fulfilled in him run off to look somewhere else for fulfillment and happiness. This is what God does. When the ones that he created in his image decide to turn away from him and take the rest of creation down with them. This is what God does. Because church, even with our fists shaking in his face, even with our hands covered with the stains of loving everything but him, even with our mouths filled with curses, God looks at us with deep love and that is absolutely true. And that deep love, that steadfast love causes him to act. It drives him to act. And what he does is he steps in and takes our place. He takes our mess, our sin, our rebellion, and he gives us his forgiveness and his righteousness and his peace. 
it was necessary because God loves people like us. Later on, Jesus will say it like this, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the good news, church. The the cross of Jesus towers at the heart of history. And do not be mistaken, the cross of Jesus towers at the heart of our faith. To know Jesus at all is to know him by faith in this way, as the one who in love goes to a cross as a friend of sinners, as a savior. But you know, in that moment, on that day, in that place, everything that Jesus has just said seems like madness to Simon. It seems like madness. It seems like absurdity. It seems like the most dangerous kind of foolishness that anyone can traffic in. And I want to tell you, church, that Simon's impulse in that moment, his reaction in that moment points us to something that really I think we should all turn over in our minds and hearts as much as we possibly can. That the suffering and death of Jesus is not an accident. It's not an unfortunate mistake. It's not a miscalculation. It is not a backup plan. The suffering and death of Jesus is either madness or love. It is either madness or love. In in November of 1942, Winston Churchill said this to the House of Commons. He said, I have not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. I'm not the prime minister out here to watch the empire just slip away. (laughs) And I can't help but wonder if Simon felt similar things that day. I'm not the rock out here. I'm not the rock out here to have it all end ingloriously in Jerusalem in a couple months. It's not going to happen under my watch. And I'm sure there was affection for Jesus in it. You know, this, this desire to save Jesus from saying embarrassing things or confusing things. We can't know all that was in Simon's mind. We can only know what it is that Jesus said about what was in Simon's mind. He said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. His fundamental orientation in the world was all messed up. His, his starting point and his ending point was him. His through line through the whole story is him, which is literally, if you think about it, the oldest sin in the book, <laughs> the one out of which all of the others flow so easily. I know best how life works, God, and in particular, I know best about how my life is supposed to work, and I know it better than you do, God, and I don't exactly trust your judgment on stuff, so I'm going to step forward, and I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to take control of this chaotic situation. And I, I can recognize that in Simon. Because I can recognize it in me. And I hope that all of us have the humility enough and the faith enough to admit that we see it in ourselves, that, that we are the Simon of our own story. That the things of me are what I have my heart set on. Not all of the time, 
but enough of the time. And with that kind of clarity, I would also hope that people like us would want to see that weakened in us, that we would want to see that part of who we are burn away and shrink away and turn into nothing. Because if it is weakened in us, it would be for our good. And for the good of everyone around us that we touch, families, friends, spouses, co-workers, neighbors, everybody. But Simon, <laughs> Simon who had once wanted nothing to do with Jesus, Simon who had been graciously lifted from the sea, Cephas, the rock on whom Jesus promised to build his church, the one in whose hands had been placed the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Simon. Simon steps up and takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Simon rebukes Jesus. No way, Jesus. This will never happen to you. You need to get your head straight and get in the game. And with no hesitation, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You do not have your mind set on the things of God. You have your mind set on the things of man. So church, do you want to know how to weaken that impulse, that impulse to have our minds set on ourselves to the detriment of ourselves and to the detriment of everyone else around us? You want to know how to weaken it? You want to know how to begin to have it be burned away? Listen to Jesus when he talks. Listen to Jesus when he talks. Through his word, through the sacraments that he has given the church in prayer, through his spirit, remain with Jesus and listen to him when he speaks. Back in Matthew 4, Matthew has told the story, the gospel writer has told the story of uh, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. It's a very important story, I think, to understand what's happening here. Be good to read it later in the afternoon. In the last of those temptations, the accuser took Jesus to a high place and he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said, Jesus, you can have all of it. All of it. All you have to do is bow down and, and worship me. In other words, he was tempting Jesus to come into his kingdom, to receive his kingdom without going to the cross, without suffering. But Jesus knows even then that there is no coming into his kingdom without the cross. There is no coming into his kingdom. There is no receiving his kingdom without suffering. Because of steadfast love, the cross is the plan. It has to be. And so with authority, he tells Satan to go, and he does. This is what's happening here with Simon. I think that is why Jesus calls him Satan. Because Simon, he wants Jesus to come into his kingdom and receive it without suffering. 
He wants Jesus to come into his kingdom without the cross. But instead of telling Simon to be gone, instead of telling Simon, get out of here and don't ever let me see your face again, Jesus' response to him is all of grace. Get behind me. Which is to say, get back to the place where you're following me, Simon. Where you're listening to what I'm saying. I am the one out ahead of you on this road. And I know where this road has to go. It is not the other way around. Jesus won't confirm Simon's vision of the good life because Simon's vision of the good life is not God's. So Jesus dismantles it and gives him a new one. It is a profound, gracious disruption. And that profound disruption was not only for Simon. It was and is for us too, as Jesus makes abundantly clear he begins in verse 24 to teach, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus wants us to know that to follow him is to go where he goes. And that means first that it is a call to deny ourselves. And I think that what Jesus means here is that he is calling us to be loosed from the thing that he wants Simon to be loosed from, a life that is ordered around the things of man, a life that is ordered around me. Jesus' call to self-denial is a call to reorient all of our loves and all of our values and the whole direction of our lives away from trying to play God and into letting him be God. A disruptive reorientation away from the things of man, which is always short-sighted and myopic and honestly destructive towards the things of God, which is the life that leads to our good and that leads to the life of the world. <laughs> so if self-denial is that interior orientation of who we are, bearing our cross is is what it actually looks like in flesh and blood. It's what people see. And therefore, it's often what costs us. There is a cost for anyone who takes up their cross. Following Jesus means that we are being a changed people, that stuff in us is being burned away in love. We are being changed. And we become people who are concerned more about others than ourselves. We start seeing other people as people to serve and to care for, not as people who are supposed to give to me and fulfill me. We start seeing our neighborhoods, the places where we live, not as places to consume and use up, but as places to serve and make better. We stop seeing our money, our possessions, all of our stuff, as things uh, that we need to protect and hoard for our security and our betterment and to create some kind of insulation around ourselves. And we start seeing those things as things that we have been given to spend up for the good of others and the glory of God. This is not exactly our culture's vision of the good life. It isn't. It is an orientation that is out of step. And church, please, thank God this is true. It is deeply threatening to the status quo. And to our, take up our crosses to accept that. 
just like Jesus did before us, but it comes with a promise. It comes with a promise from the lips of Jesus himself. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. People who live like Jesus are precisely the kind of people this hurting and broken world needs. And when we live that way, when we live like this, we begin to sense God's pleasure in us. And when we live like this, we begin to sense the overwhelming joy of life. It's true. It's absolutely true, church. When we live like that, we get a sense that we are living the life that we have been created for, and we know it in our bones. We know it. We have found life. Jesus' great uh, disrupting grace to Simon made this possible for him. This steadfast love of Jesus made much of Simon, and that means without question that there is hope for people like us too in that same steadfast love in that same disrupting and reorienting grace. So follow him if you have not. Stay with him if you have. Come back if you have wandered away. Remain with him and listen when he speaks. Let me pray for us. Father, we do not want to be the kind of people that we can read, read about in black and white and think we definitely don't want to be that people, the people who gain the whole world and lose the things that matter the most. We read that and we know we don't want to be that, but we, Father, need your help to not be those people. We need you to disrupt us again and again, to reorient us again and again by your grace in whatever way that you deem necessary so that we would remain with you, so that we would listen when your son speaks. Father, we ask that you would do this so that we can grow up in our faith, that you would do this so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.